Hello and welcome once again to Voices in Innovation from GigaOM. I'm your host, Johnny Baldisberger, and today I am joined by a slew of international brilliant analysts. I have Enrico Signoretti, John Collins, and Nigel, uh, who I have not yet learned how to pronounce your last name, Nigel. Poulton, that'll do. I'm easy. Lovely. <laughs> uh, today we're going to be delving into Kubernetes. Obviously, we've talked and written reports at GigaOM with both John and Enrico, but Nigel, you've made a career out of making Kubernetes less frightening and containers less frightening for people trying to get into the industry and really figure out their whole thing. So let's get started. I'm going to start with you, Enrico, because you're in the square next to me, Hollywood Square style. I realize that joke may have fallen on deaf ears for my international audience. Uh, Enrico, how are you? And how did you get involved in Kubernetes? I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. <laughs> and and um, my, well, my story with Kubernetes started not a long ago. I mean, I knew about Kubernetes since the beginning, uh, the project that, uh, you know, spun off from Google and everything, but, uh, uh, except for the basics, I started dealing with Kubernetes a little bit late. And uh, thank you for Nigel, actually. I, I had the chance to read uh, his books and they were very entertaining, not just the you know, usual book. So that, uh, that helped me to, to, to get into the Kubernetes environment, how it works and all that. And of course, I'm doing this because the industry is stormed by Kubernetes now. Everybody is talking uh, about it. So uh, not uh, knowing what it is, what it does, uh, why it is important for enterprises, you know, was, uh, was a big hole in my knowledge. So I started doing it and talking more and more with our users and, uh, you know, vendors about it. So last year, I started also writing about it, and uh, I presented a, a bunch of uh, reports. Most of them are, as usual, uh, about infrastructure and uh, and storage, because these are my area interests. But actually, uh, I, I'm keeping an eye on all the ecosystem now. Thank you, John. Kubernetes is a is a thing that allows for, I'm going to try to say this, autonomous deployment from the cloud. That sounds right That's up your DevOps alley. Oh, I How think did you scary. first kind of get into <laughs> Kubernetes? Um, that's a very good question. I, I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I have not touched, I have never built anything that is made out of Kubernetes. Um, I mean, a long time ago, I was a programmer uh, and uh, I've worked, I've worked, I used to run uh, software tools environments. Um, so, so I've got that background uh, and I, I used to be an agile development consultant. So that's where I get the DevOps points. Uh, but Kubernetes, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting area. It, it, it's come out of virtualization. Um, how about we just break up? A, this, is, this, is, this is my primitive view on Kubernetes. How, how about we just break up an application and, uh, and put each chunk of the application into, it, into its own bucket? And then we'll work out how to get the different buckets to communicate. Um, and 
to me that really goes back to 1975 when they were first talking about software modularity and cohesion and coupling and all that stuff when Jordan and Constantine were writing their seminal papers. Um, what's changed over the past few years is the cloud, obviously, um, but also having the network bandwidth and the ability to make that. We've always wanted distributed applications. Uh, it's just that the infrastructure wasn't good enough to support that. But now we, we can, so it's like everything else has reached a threshold that's made some very old ideas come into reality. So um, while I haven't used it, I'm kind of going, ah, finally, thank God, you know, we, we've got around to it, we've got around to it in the end. But then the, the ramifications are huge in terms of complexity management. And uh, I mean, uh, just uh, orchestration, which is, I mean, it's less about Kubernetes and more about the containers. You know, we can containerize an application, but then how do you, how do you throw the bits into the right buckets? Where are the buckets? How do you manage all that? And that's where Kubernetes comes in. But then there's lots of stuff that needs to go around Kubernetes as well to make all of that work. So um, early days on this stuff, and it's fascin a really fascinating area. Thank you, John. Nigel, you have written the book on Kubernetes, several actually, and you have several uh, lessons on Kubernetes in video form on your website. How did you first delve into this world? What has sparked your passion to make this the centerpiece of your career. Yeah. Hiya, John. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah, so I have to wind the clock a long way back um, to, to really the beginning of my IT career where books were a huge, huge, um, I think, tool or resource that I used to learn and to claw my way into a, a career in IT. So I always wanted to work with computers and technology because I'm kind of fascinated by it. Um, I'm a little bit of a self-starter, um, but back in the early days when I was like resetting passwords on a help desk and what have you, I consumed books like nothing else because I wanted to be like, you know, one of the top people at the company that I worked at. I, I looked at those guys in awe, really. Anyway, um, books were super important to me. Um, and I, but what I found was that some books were really, really good and some books were um, being kind, not so good, let's just say. Um, and every time I bought a book, I would agonize over which book to buy. And occasionally I'd buy the wrong one and I'd read it or I'd read a chapter on something I didn't understand. And at the end of reading the chapter, I still didn't understand it. And that really annoyed me. Um, anyway, so uh, I got a career going in IT and I always liked learning new things. Um, I eventually came across Docker um, when it was super new and super exciting and decided, you know what? It, it felt like it was the, um, the virtualization craze again. Like it felt like what VMware did in the early days. Excuse me. So I thought, you know what? I want to get on this bandwagon. Um, and at around about the same time, I, I found that I had a little, bit of a, a little bit of a knack or a skill at being able to explain things and, and teach things to people. And I'd always, since these books had been important in my early career, I'd always wanted to be able to give something back to the community. And I thought, actually, um, there's going to be a lot of people who want to learn containers. And it was Docker at the time, and subsequently it's Kubernetes as well. But Kubernetes wasn't around at the time. So I thought, I'm going to write a book on Docker, and I'm going to do some video training courses. And I think because of my experiences that I'd had, where I'd spent my hard-earned cash on books that sometimes weren't so good, I was super passionate that any book or any training video that I put together 
was going to teach things crystal clear um, so that nobody would walk away from one of my materials and think, oh, yeah, well, that was a waste of time. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I most certainly have not achieved that. But I think a lot of things came together. Like I have this passion to always want to learn about new technology. Um, I, I feel almost like once I learn something, I get a bit bored with it and I want to move on to the next thing. So I've got this passion for learning new stuff. I have a bit of an ability. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not anywhere near probably the best at it, right? But I've got a bit of an ability to teach people. Um, and that all came together in like, I started writing books on Docker, video training courses on Docker. Um, as John mentioned, you know, the container part we've sort of done and now we're trying to orchestrate it with Kubernetes. Um, Kubernetes is vast and I don't think I'll ever know it all. So it keeps me interested, but there's always like, there's a, a huge market of people that want or need to learn it. Um, so I'm trying to put my ability to teach complex things in clear ways um, to work in that kind of containers and Kubernetes space. If that makes sense, I hope it does. Absolutely. So why is Kubernetes so important? What differentiates it from, let's say, OpenStack? Uh, is, it, is it the real deal when it comes to application portability? These are all things that I think a lot of people are questioning as they look at various tools that are available. Enrico, what are your thoughts? I never loved OpenStack. I mean, it was complex. It was uh, uh, somehow a project that started even on the right basis, but actually they, uh, they wanted to be the AWS cloud uh, for private infrastructure. And after a while, they started uh, running after VMware for similar reasons. And they started throwing in this project so many things. There, there was no uh, benevolent dictator like uh, uh, we had in, uh, in, in Linux in general and other projects. So it, there were so many things going wrong with uh, OpenStack. And, uh, and at a certain point, I felt like uh, uh, most of the community was, uh, was only trying to build something that was an alternative to something that was already working. I mean, the private cloud, the public cloud was working very well. VMware <laughs> works very well. Why building a, 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 an alternative for something that works and people are happy with? I mean, that was my concern. And in fact that, you know, uh, after the, the initial hype and all the interest, all the money poured in in uh, in this thing, uh, it remains a niche. I mean, still complex. Still, uh, uh, it still needs a lot of customization to make something work. And at the end, uh, he found this niche in the telecommunication industry and a few other things with a service provider, but just remain something that is not good for the enterprise. That that was my. Uh, some of this complexity is also you can try also in uh, kubernetes but it's a totally different approach i mean there is uh, uh there are many uh, si um, many signs that is going towards a, a better future somehow john the other day on the 
very final episode of Voices in DevOps, we mentioned how every problem is a sales problem, uh, that everything we do needs to answer some question uh, or solve some problem or why are we doing it? Mm-hmm. So you also just a few minutes ago mentioned that your view on Kubernetes is like, finally, exactly mm-hmm. what problems are Kubernetes answering? Yeah, it, it's a very good question. I mean, I've got loads of theories about how tech works, but a lot of them boil down to the fact that uh, technology is a bit like water. It it tends to find its own level. So there's, I've worked on various proprietary systems over the years. Um, I was just, uh, I was just thinking back in the day, I was, I was, I was uh, programming uh, CAD systems for Philips and uh, it, we built a proprietary CAD system where mentor graphics was sitting there saying you could just buy ours. And two things were stupid there. One was we didn't just buy mental graphics. And the second was we didn't just sell our system. No, no one thought of commercializing it. And that, that whole world of, of, of proprietary stuff happened. Um, but the, so tech, the way that technology adoption tends to happen is often because a need emerges and, and it just stuff happens, whether or not it's the right thing. It's like... Uh, X400 versus FMTP, people built this huge infrastructure for email. No one bought into it. Everyone just carried on using the stuff that was relatively okay and, and reasonably adequate. So if we look at um, uh, where Kubernetes has come from, um, contain, virtual machines came from a, a situation where suddenly hardware was more powerful than uh, operating systems needed it to be. So you could run more than one computer on a single computer. And that was a really interesting moment, as Nigel, as Nigel said. It was, it was a very exciting moment where suddenly you could run two virtual machines on a single physical machine, and then four, and then eight, and Moore's law went up. And, and so suddenly we... And of course, because you could, and this is uh, where Kubernetes is going to link into this stuff, everyone did. So we started talking about virtual machine sprawl, uh, where it was like the, the sorcerer's apprentice. You could just generate virtual machines just like that, and so people started just cloning them and reconfiguring them. And uh, we ended up with a virtual machine management problem, uh, which still exists in many organizations uh, because it could. And um, then virtual machines began containers and, and Docker and, and all that. It was just the right way to build a, a virtualized environment to support uh, code li- software libraries, um, which is all well and good. And then Yes, that started getting used, and then it got used more and more and more without necessarily having the mechanisms to to, to make it easy. So Kubernetes came out of Google um, largely as a solution to the problem caused by containers, which was, uh, and Nigel can can uh, correct me on what I'm saying here, because I'm not fully okay with all that. I wasn't there with the history, but essentially when people were building Kubernetes, uh, containerized applications that created a management problem that created an orchestration problem uh, and uh, Google created a way of solving that uh, which was uh, to automate how you get from the stuff that you're trying to deploy to it actually being out there and if something goes wrong it'll uh, it'll fix it uh, so you know, if a container crashes then it'll it'll re it'll it'll reinitiate it or you can redeploy a new version of it or, or whatever else. 
Uh, and so it was a necessary response to the fact that containers uh, had become uh, almost overnight. It felt, it felt that way. So in technology, things move either very slow or very fast, one, someone once said. And this was one of those things where it went from nobody doing it to everybody either doing it or wanting it because it was the most obvious thing in the world. And suddenly we needed something. And I think there were, so there was Docker Swarm was, was another um, mechanism that could start to solve this problem. That is a B, uh, which I'll just move away from. Um, uh, there was Docker Swarm. There, there, there were other mechanisms that, uh, literally a B just flew in front of my face. Uh, there are other mechanisms that, that were coming up. Kubernetes just kind of got accepted as the default. There's, there's still, I mean, Amazon, AWS, kind of a bit plaintive about the fact that people aren't adopting their mechanism uh, for uh, uh, Elastic Container Service and then uh, Elastic Kubernetes Service um, uh, has come out. They wanted everyone to use ECS because that was their mechanism. Um, so it, yeah, it, it's a response to a need that came out of nowhere as happens in technology is my summary. Uh, I sent that B to try to, you know, Coming lose on. my cane to yank you off the stage. <laughs> it didn't work out for me. Yeah, these are big but, questions, you know. Very simple answers to these things. Nigel, I attempted to throw John a softball. Uh, I want to get back to the comparison of Kubernetes and OpenStack and why Kubernetes is so important for an enterprise to uh, explore and adapt. Yeah, sure. And I think I can maybe build on John's answer there. So, um, I, and on what Enrico said as well, to be honest. So I try not to get lost when I, when I go through this. So to touch on John's point, um, we started getting container sprawl like we did with virtual machines and we needed something to manage it is 100% true. Um, but also um, the, like the 100 pound gorilla in the room in the cloud space was Amazon Web Services and nobody wanted them to run away with the market, maybe except Amazon, okay? Um, but I don't think customers did, because customers like choice. Um, certainly Microsoft and Google and all of the other players in that space didn't want Amazon to run away with things, so they wanted a portability solution. Um, so Kubernetes came along um, and promised and initially did deliver on some things, and as time goes on, delivers on more things, okay? But it promised to um, help us manage that container sprawl. But it also promised to give us an easy on and off ramp to the cloud from on-premises data centers and potentially back and then between clouds as well. Um, which I think hooks in a little bit to what Enrico was saying when he was comparing it to OpenStack. I really felt like OpenStack was trying to, and Enrico's already said this, right? But OpenStack was trying to be an open source version of AWS and then an open source version of VMware. And anybody that's been around technology knows that once somebody has gotten a head start on you and has done a good job of it, it is so hard to rein them in and to catch them. So I think OpenStack was always fighting an uphill battle there. It was trying to be something else that was already out there and, and wildly successful in the form of AWS and vSphere. Whereas Kubernetes, came from a very different approach. It, it actually came to solve problems that we were creating and there wasn't already somebody out there doing that. Um, so I think it's very different to OpenStack. Sure, it's super complex like OpenStack. Maybe it's not as complex as OpenStack in my personal opinion, 
but that is not to say it is not complex. It is complex. Um, I think, John, if uh, you, know, you were saying thank goodness for Kubernetes earlier, when you start getting your hands on, if you do, you might retract that comment because it can be super hard. Yeah. Um, but it's trending in the direction of getting easier. Um, but it is solving more and more those problems of how do we, and I know it's a buzzword, right, but how do we orchestrate these applications that were once a, a big, simple, if I call it, monolithic application, that are now these wildly distributed applications that loosely talk to each other over APIs, have different teams managing every component, can be running on different infrastructures, but all talking and giving an overall application experience, it helps us solve that complexity, but it also helps us then say, well, actually I don't know which cloud I want to be on in two years or in five years for sure. Um, so I run the risk if I don't have something like Kubernetes of making the wrong decision and regretting it. Whereas if I start building on top of Kubernetes from day one, then if, I, if I've made the wrong decision, it's not super hard to fix that decision later. Just a dead simple example before I give you the mic back. So I say quite a lot that um, Linux and Windows as operating systems came along so that as, as programmers, we didn't have to care whether it was an Intel whatever chip that our code was running on or an AMD or we didn't have to care which memory dim our code was using, right? Um, yes, programming languages and things, but the operating system came along and abstracted that. In a way, Kubernetes comes along and it says, you know what, you can consume Amazon Web Services or Google, Com uh, Google Cloud Platform or um, Microsoft Azure or whatever you want to consume. Just stick Kubernetes on top and we'll abstract all of that stuff underneath. Um, now, it, 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 I'm going to say it, it's still early-ish days there um, and it's not as easy to migrate workloads as it potentially could or will be. But I think we're heading in that, right, that kind of good direction. Fantastic. I want to talk a little bit about DevOps so that John can feel good about his participation. Um, <laughs> Enrico, could you tell me just a little bit about the intersection of DevOps and data storage? Oh, <laughs> this is a <laughs> tough question. Uh, you know, data storage is infrastructure, pure infrastructure, while uh, DevOps is all about, you know, the processes and uh, uh, new methodologies to develop software and, and manage the infrastructure at the high level. Uh, I have to say that when, when you talk with these uh, new DevOps, you know, guys in, uh, with IT organization, it's very tough to understand if they really have any knowledge about, you know, what's, uh, what really happens behind the scene, okay? So they have a lot of self-service kind of uh, thing. So if I need more resources, I can allocate them. Yes, of course, you can do that. Then the problem is that sometimes the resources are not there or they are not really doing what you are expecting from them or things like that. So a little bit of knowledge is missing there. There, there is a... Uh, something in the middle that some, somehow is lost in, um, in the translation, okay? So when, when I talk about that, uh, DevOps, sometimes I'm skeptical. It, there is a thing though, uh, I mean, 
this level of abstraction that you know the DevOps teams usually ask helped a lot in the last couple of years to rethink a lot of uh, data storage things. So we, we talked more about data management and not just data storage because the concept of data storage, so a box with disks and flash memory and whatever that gives you access to your data is outdated, okay? Uh, now you want the same identical experience, no, no matter where you are on premises, on the cloud or whatever, okay? So, Many storage vendors are building infrastructure that are replicable, replicable uh, in different environments. So you have your box on premises, but you have the same identical managed service or you know, a virtual machine or whatever that gives the identical services on the cloud. So your data is portable because without the data, you can port the application, okay? So you use everything with API. Everything is more automated than a few years ago. And this is very, very interesting process going on in, uh, across all the industry, actually. And, uh, and it's you know, really important for me that now when you talk with uh, you know, uh, the DevOps guys, I, I'm closer to them than in the past. But at the same time, you know, they start to understand that, uh, you know, it's not only about uh, um, stateful, stateless application, there is persistence in data. And you know, th there are proofs of that. I mean, CSI plugins are coming uh, uh, from all the, all the vendors now. CSI is an initiative uh, internal to Kubernetes to, you know, to, to work with persistent storage, but it's an afterthought. I mean, there was not there two, three years ago if you needed a persistent volume on uh, data volume on, uh, on Kubernetes, it was impossible. So I think all the market is maturing somehow. And now, you know, the, the, all the conversation are, you know, better than, uh, than a couple of years ago. So uh, I, I don't know if I answered your questions actually, but, but the reality is that now we are closer than in the past and the conversation are, uh, better because people understand each other a little bit more than uh, two, three years ago. John, just a week or two ago, you had Harbinger Kang on this show and you discussed how to adopt the successful DevOps philosophy for a company and the change in mentality people will need to go through in order to do that. Do you feel like Kubernetes is going to require the same change in mentality and the same amount of effort for an enterprise to adopt? Uh, it's a very good question. Uh, I'm glad you asked it. Uh, so the, um, what seems to happen time and time again with, with technology is that people working with, it's like the New Yorker's map of the world. Uh, so the, I don't know if you've seen this picture, but the New Yorker's map of the world sees a New York, you know, the um, 42nd Street was huge. And then over there, there's this tiny thing called Europe. And then, you know, even further away, Iceland or, or whatever. And it's, you know, the Eiffel Tower poking up. And, um, and if you saw that, certainly from a Parisian perspective, uh, New York is completely irrelevant because the only thing that matters is Paris. So um, where... Um, we see frequently, and it, it goes back to what em, em, Enrico's answer there as well, uh, 
I've seen the software world uh, look at Kubernetes as uh, you know, a magic bullet. And how many times do we say, this isn't a magic bullet? And we shouldn't ever have to say that again, but we have to keep saying it because people keep thinking the latest, greatest thing is going to be a magic bullet and it never is. And then the other thing that happens is that we kind of assume that our whatever we're looking at is important and nothing else matters. So I hear, for example, in DevOps circles that operational management stuff, it's all going to be automated. Everything, all the problems are going to go away uh, and none of that's ever going to matter again because machine learning or because AI or, you know, um, it's, it's all going to be fantastic and you don't have to think about it anymore, which is great. Uh, and I also hear um, uh, conversations with uh, uh, companies like NetApp are, are, are very relevant here uh, where um, we don't need to worry about infrastructure. It's all software defined. It's all automated. It's all fantastic. Um, and a big mistake when serverless architectures came up, which is, you know, um, certainly aligned and related to, to the Kubernetes world um, was people thought, well, stateful, stateless, is just a thing that happens in the application, but it doesn't really matter. It's just something that you can address with a tweak to your software. And only now are we working out that the, the relationship between what happens in the software layer and what happens deep down is, is hugely important. Um, of course, it always was. It's always still going to be about transistors. It's always still going to be about uh, storing information in a physical world, uh, whatever happens in, in, in the virtual world. So mental models wise, and back to your, your point about hardware in the can, I think that the most important thing that we can impress upon anybody is that everything still matters. So it's still about network bandwidth. It's still about being able to manage stuff in persistent storage. The threshold of getting information in and out from wherever it's stored across NVMe uh, uh, over Fabric or, or across uh, TCP IP or whatever it happens to be is going to be hugely important and it's going to dictate how applications are built. We're looking at edge infrastructure right now. Um, and philosophically and psychologically, the biggest step I think anyone can take is to go, we'll work on our stuff and get really good at it, but we must not ignore or assume that everything else uh no longer matters because we're just building on top of a bunch of other stuff that has to work really well it you know as the old adage goes it's turtles all the way down uh each each level has to get their their stuff working right otherwise we can't have that mobile app it, it, it's got to go right the, right the way through top to bottom so so that's what people need to think about nigel uh john tried to take your speaking time from you but we won't let him uh, where do you see DevOps and Kubernetes interacting? And, and sort of the same question I asked John, what sort of mental gymnastics and mentality change need to happen in order for a company to successfully use Kubernetes within their DevOps? Uh, yeah. Okay. So um, very short answer on what sort of mentality does a company need? And I think this is especially the case for enterprises. Um, and I say this a lot, okay, so I apologize for anybody listening has heard me say it before. Um, but you need to be well and truly prepared for pain, pain, and considerably more pain. Um, because this is not like virtual machines. Um, I think we sometimes do the 
um, the changes required an injustice by referring to containerization as um, uh, containerization 2.0. So I think almost the beauty of virtualization was that we could pick up our existing applications and just drop them into virtual machines, no net new code or anything like that. And we would gain efficiencies on the infrastructure side of things. We'd cut costs, we'd cut lead times, all that good stuff. Um, the, the paradigm is very different from moving to a more DevOpsy containerized workload world where we really have to, excuse me, rethink the way that we design and deploy and then manage our applications. And that is not done easily and it should not be taken lightly. It, it's, it's super difficult to do that. Um, so I think, and most organizations that have a lot of legacy or heritage applications tend to take the approach where they'll have like a SWAT team or some like, you know, small team of specialists that are keen to take on um, new technologies, clever people within the organization, and they'll start with something that's relatively simple. They'll learn how to do it. And they'll then take a second application, maybe a third, document things as they go, and then look to push it to the wider organization but in a slow and steady as she goes approach. Um, leaving all the hard stuff like Enrico, I think mentioned like the stateful things and things like that until later on. Anything that's business critical, don't touch it at the beginning. Um, just be super careful. Um, but to what Enrico was saying as well about um, storage and I think to the wider infrastructure view, okay, is that if you wind it back to when I said Kubernetes was trying to be a little bit like an operating system and abstract all of the server, for want of a better term, all of the server's hardware. Um, because at the end of the day, right, the developer didn't want to care, um, you know, which CPU core, 99% of the time, right, the developer didn't want to care which CPU core or thread that their code was executing on. And, you know, which particular memory addresses and which DIM that was on or whatever. They don't want to care about that. They want their application to work. Sometimes they need it to be super fast, um, different requirements, and they want the operating system or their programming language or the combination of both to take care of that for them. And I think developers and DevOps people want Kubernetes to do the same thing for cloud infrastructure and for on-premises infrastructure as well. So instead of caring whether your storage, just because Enrico was talking about storage, is NVMe or some other type of flash or, or whatever, right? And what the connectivity technology is, they don't want to care about that. All they want to care about is they've got an application. So actually the developer's view is more aligned to the application's view, which again is more aligned to the user's view, is that they just want it to be fast, okay? Or they might just want lots of storage or something like that, and they want Kubernetes to sit there as a broker for them through the CSI and all of the different primitives that Kubernetes implements that plug into you know, external storage systems, be that on a cloud platform or be that on your on-premises data center or whatever. Um, all of the different complexities and the different technologies that build these different storage platforms, let's have Kubernetes abstract that and the developer to let's say pick, okay, I've got an application that just needs lots of storage um, that it can retrieve quite quickly, but it doesn't have to have like highly consistent writes. Just pick that type of storage off the shelf. I'm oversimplifying, of course, right? But they might have another application. The storage this time must be super fast. As an application, as a user, as a developer, I don't care whose badge is on it, and I don't care what connectivity technology or, or 
whether it's NVMe, this or that, just give me fast, right? And we are, we're getting to the point, or at least, <laughs> at least I can see the light at the end of the tunnel because a lot of people have to come to the same party here, the vendors, Kubernetes, the application have to come together as well. Um, but where Kubernetes can be that platform that says, I'm just going to abstract everything. Um, and I, look, I'm going to say that will work for 80% of applications. You're always going to have some applications that are highly specialized and need something that's finely tuned for them. Um, leave those to last and, and maybe don't put them on Kubernetes because as much as I love Kubernetes and containers, not one of those people who says everybody has to do it. If you don't have a need for it, um, spare yourself the pain, okay? And, but I think we're getting to the point where it can be that kind of abstraction layer where the application and the developer doesn't have to care what's going on behind the scenes. Does that get to the question? Absolutely, thank you. We are almost out of time. So Enrico, you are easily findable on Twitter through eSignoretti. And John, you are on Twitter as Jono, but you also write reports and blog posts for gigaohm.com. Enrico, if someone is interested in learning more about Kubernetes and its relationship with data storage and or any other aspect of reports, which of your reports would you recommend they read? Well, actually, I have two reports now in, uh, online. One is data storage for Kubernetes, and the other one is uh, hosted, about hosted Kubernetes. So uh, it's a series of reports. So they, they cover both the high level and the market uh, landscape and uh, in both cases. So just, uh, just go to gigam.com and, uh, and find them there. And I'll link all of these reports in the show notes, both on the YouTube and on gigaohm.com. So easily be able to find them there. John, which of your reports for someone who's looking into, well, Kubernetes, but just getting started with DevOps, which of your reports would you recommend they read? Um, I, th I think um, I'd start with uh, a lot of the challenge here is, is not about doing the pilot project, it's about scaling. Uh, and uh, there's a there's a report. It, it's it's a year old now, but it's uh, it's about scaling enterprise DevOps, which is it covers all the bases in terms of uh, different areas that you need to be thinking about uh, the problems that get in the way of scaling DevOps. So uh, scaling Kubernetes uh, is about complexity management. It's about process. It's about getting on top of um, uh, having lots of people doing lots of different things and it's all got to work together at the end. Uh, and DevOps uh, needs to scale to, to fit those needs. So, so I, I'd start with that one. Fantastic. Nigel, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you have books, you have online classes, uh, you do live events. First of all, how do people find all of that and how do they follow you to stay abreast of what you're doing from an ongoing basis? Thanks, John. Yeah. Um, so I think the easiest place is just to go to my website, which is nigelpolton.com. Um, I am I'm moderately active on Twitter as well, where I, I just love technology is my passion at the end of the day, right? So I love talking about technology on Twitter. 
Um, I am at Nigel Poulton on Twitter. Um, I'll happily talk about containers, serverless, Kubernetes, cloud, anything that you want. Um, and I just want to say that although my website is nigelpoulton.com and I'm found pretty much everywhere as Nigel Poulton, it's not because I love the sound of my name, but it is because the technology industry moves so fast that although I'm Kubernetes today, I am happy to shed that skin in the future when it's something else new. So whatever it is that I'm doing, whatever is after Kubernetes, I will still be at Nigel Poulton and nigelpoulton.com. Fantastic. Thank you all of you for joining us today. This has been a fascinating conversation. For GigaOM, I'm John Baldisberger, and this has been Voices in Innovation. Oh, wow.